wonderful. Podcast for mid-January 2017. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Resident Evil 6. Hi, my name is Chris. I'm Ginger Yellow on the forums, and my game of the week is not Gremlins Inc. Oh, that board game thing. Why don't you like Gremlins Inc.? Uh, well, it's not that I don't like it. Uh, it's just not my game of the week, because having seen it recommended on the forum, I downloaded it. Mm-hmm. Um, probably proceeded not to play it. So uh, it's my game of next week. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, give it a chance before you write it off entirely. Uh, if you like video game board games, uh, it comes highly recommended from me. Uh, and if you ever want to play online, Chris, uh, let me know. I'd be happy to play you. Indeed. So, Chris, I know a lot of people listening, they hear your accent, and one thing comes to mind, one thing they want to ask you, and that thing, Chris, is... Uh, what's the deal with Brexit? <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> it goes for a lot of us. Now, when I when I said something before about your accent, and I uh, I forget what I, I said, you were British or English, whatever, and you corrected me and said you're the other thing. What makes you not British or not English, but English or British? Uh, I'm, I'm not English, but British. Uh, now, wait, how can that possibly be? Because Britain is an island, right? And England is... It encompasses, like, Scotland and the UK. Uh, so how can you not be English? Basically, I have zero... I, although I live in England, I have zero English heritage. Uh, to the extent I have British heritage, it's Scots and Irish, as in when Ireland was British. Um, uh, but that's several generations back. Uh, and I emigrated here when I was very young and got became a naturalised British citizen. Uh, so I'm... British by citizenship and by heritage, but not in, not remotely English, despite sounding English. Do you do you often have a hard time explaining that? Because I'm not sh- I'm still not sure I can wrap my head around it. It it goes down to all those like imperial vestiges that you guys have going over there. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it's varying degrees of difficulty of explanation depending on who I'm speaking to. But people tend to be more freaked out by the fact that I'm, I'm American than by. Well, that's what I was going to say, is we can count you as one of ours. Uh, why? Explain why you talk that way, but you are American. Uh, I mean, it's relatively simple. Uh, my mm-hmm. family is all American originally. Um, my parents, well, they're a fairly peripatetic family in the first place, living, you know, living all over the world when I was, um, well, before I was born and, and when I was young, um, and but moved to England when I was basically one and a half. Uh, and I've Growing up here ever since, so I've always had a. Ever since I could speak, anyway, I've had an English accent. Do, do your folks have an English accent? Uh, my parents don't know. Um, although they, when they go back to the states, they always get uh, teased for sort of having have a mid-Atlantic accent. My right, brother, yeah. my brother grew up. Who's he's six and a half years older than me. He grew up with an American accent. Uh, moved here when he was eight. Um, and promptly lost it within about six months. And that was a, sounds as English as I do. Now, you, I would think you would be qualified to do this, and I know people with accents hate it when I do this, but we, and by we I mean people with American accents who talk normally, we love asking you guys to do this. 
can you speak with an American accent? Not in the slightest. Come on, I don't believe you. Would. Tell you what, Chris, I will attempt a British accent <laughs> if you will attempt an American accent. Uh, all right. Come on, you know you I, can do it. I'll even go first if you want. You're an actor. Oh please! <laughs> it's only there are very few actors who do good accents. I don't. You must realize this, by the way, watching like movies and television, seeing an American do an English accent. Like you must realize that must sound weird to your ear, right? Like I bet you can suss out a crappy English accent. Well, I mean, yes, but I'm I'm pretty bad at accents slash voices in general. Just the whole oral perception thing. Like I've, I learned like five six languages at school. Uh, if you include Latin, uh, and I was always terrible at speaking all of them just because I didn't have an ear for it. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm not, I don't pick up a bad English accent as much as some people would. Uh, okay, well, let, let's, uh, then, then good, you won't know how bad I am, uh, and maybe I won't know how bad your American is, but let's hear you say, <laughs> I'm trying to think, what's an, Amer- what's an American? Uh, do you know, so being a naturalized British citizen who was born in America, do you know the words to the Pledge of Allegiance? It's a weird question to ask these days, I guess. The, the American Pledge of Allegiance, not whatever you guys have for the Queen over there. Only through pop culture. Um. So I would like you to try, as best as you can, uh, the, American, uh, the, the American Pledge of Allegiance in an American accent. And if you do that, I won't ask you any more difficult or annoying questions for the entire time that we do this podcast. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure I can get much beyond I pledge allegiance to the flag. That's fine. Fake it. I'm just curious what you would do. Yeah. Just try it. Yeah. Just. Uh, do you want a particular part of America? Uh, wow, that's a good question. You know what? I'll leave that up to you. It'll be a dealer's choice. <laughs> I think it's going to end up being all over America, to be honest, and <laughs> other parts as well. Uh, oh, God. <clears throat> I pledge allegiance to the flag. One Nation Under God, and all other stuff. <laughs> Chris, your American is terrible. <laughs> Everything is terrible, to be fair. Uh, all right, I, I will reciprocate. I'll do uh, – here's probably what the English Pledge of Allegiance goes like. Ready? Uh, I pledge allegiance to the Queen of England, who is the boss of all of us, and we must do everything that she says – uh, until she gets much older and dies, and then we have to do whatever Prince Charles says. There, there was my English. <laughs> I'll just edit those parts out of the podcast so nobody has to hear those. <laughs> a little bit Dudley Moore there. So. Oh, well, you know, that's how, that's how Americans learn how English folks talk. Like at my generation, it's Dudley Moore. I'm sure younger folks, it's probably like Russell Brandt. Uh, yeah, car- actors who play Arthur teach Americans <laughs> How to speak English. Yeah. Now, uh, you have twice used, once before we started recording and once on the podcast, you've used the word peripatetic, which says to me, Chris, you're a fairly educated fellow with a white-collar job. Am I correct? Uh, yeah, that's fair. You are a journalist, so you obviously know how to roll out big, fancy words. Uh what is the state of how, how long? So, how long have you been a journalist? I know you said your current job you've been doing for five or six years. Um, in total, um, 16, 17 years. Okay, and you work in on, an online publication right now. Your particular area is finance, you told me. In those 16 or 17 years, tell me a little bit about how you've seen 
the business uh, of journalism change? Um, well, weirdly enough, my particular field, or at least my publications in that field, have been relatively well insulated from that. From you know, however you want to phrase it, seismic changes. Um, you know, it's, as an industry as a whole, it's completely changed. But um, when I started out in journalism, um, the, the the publication I started out on was a it was a print publication, which is obviously not much of a thing anymore. Um, but it was always quite subscription led, so it didn't really suffer from the sort of collapse in advertising revenues um, for most print publications. It was always heavily subscriber revenue driven, so so it it maintained its print led status. We did build out the online side of it um, quite substantially by the time I left, sort of ten years later. Uh, but it was still still going as a print, it still is going as a print publication. Um, and it didn't, it didn't really have that forced um, reinvention or just restructuring that, that most print-led publications had. Mm-hmm. Um, my current publication is entirely online, though, so to that extent, um, yeah, obviously it's very different. Um, I'm working on a minute-to-minute deadline rather than a once-a-week deadline, uh, as it was when I was starting out. But I, I, I'm not, I've never had to worry about you know, attracting clicks and that sort of thing that a lot of journalists in the, in the modern world do because uh, I've always worked for this very specialist niche sector that's people are paying for correct and, and timely information rather than celebrity gossip or whatever. Which is, You don't have to write headlines like, you won't believe what these stocks did today. Exactly. Uh, so is, uh, is uh, the, your day-to-day work um, – pretty much the same kinds of, well, I guess the deadlines would change. I was going to ask, is your day-to-day work a lot like it was 16 years ago when you started? Uh, yes, I know. I mean, uh, the, the subject matter that I'm covering is, is more or less identical, except for the fact that you know, the global financial crisis happened, which obviously changed people's perspectives on things um, and the state of, of the world. Uh, but, but as you say, the, the, the kind of the, the rhythms of it are completely different. You know, I used to do, you know, when I first started, we did more or less no work on a Monday and Tuesday and then work 24 hour shift on a Thursday. Uh, that's long gone. Uh, you know, why so would you, that's obviously something to do with the markets or why would that be? No, well, it's just because we have this weekly um, print cycle. Um, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Right, right. So as, as the deadline gets near, the work piles up. I see. Right. Exactly. Uh, tell me about – so you, you were covering it. Like you were writing about uh, finance as the crisis unfolded. Tell me about the early days of seeing that happen uh, and when you sort of started to realize how severe and dire this would be and what the sort of consequences would be. What was it like watching that unfold? Uh, well, I think in the early days, I didn't realize quite how severe it was going to be. I think partly because it, it was a different crisis, in, at least in the early days for the Pretty much the first year of the crisis, it was a different crisis in Europe than it was in the States. Because um, most of what was happening in Europe, which is where my focus was and still largely is, um, was kind of blowback from the US. There wasn't an awful lot of actual uh, underlying distress in, in, you know, in borrowers, in, in just general financial markets. So it was only the companies and the funds and what have you that had exposure to the US that were really... Um, 
really sort of directly suffering in the early days. So it looked like um, it was not necessarily going to blow over, but it would um, be an ordinary crash, for whatever that phrase, for until, well, more or less until sort of early 2008. It really, you saw the first signs of distress in late 2006, early 2007, and at that point, we were all talking about, you know, we were writing articles about, well, okay, it's going to be really grim for the next six months, but what sorts of, how might it look in, in September 2007, say? Um, and then in September 2007, a couple of UK banks uh, had, basically they ran out of cash. <laughs> they weren't insolvent, but they, they couldn't raise funds and they got nationalised. And that was kind of the, really the first inkling that, no, this is a, a really serious crisis. Was it, uh, ex- you know, this is going to sound weird, but was it kind of exciting for you guys? Uh, I mean, obviously, the it was it was horrific the degree to which things were collapsing. Um, but it must have been as someone who had like to be given something that dramatic to write about must have been in a way exciting. Uh, yeah, certainly in the early months, it was it was definitely exciting. It was uh, to be honest, at that stage, it was kind of a nice change of pace because mm-hmm. it'd been such a long boom that. You just got bored writing the same stories about you know, <laughs> pricing a bit better and overwhelming demand and all that sort of stuff. So having a having a new bad story to write about you know, every other day, uh, yeah, it was definitely exciting and interesting. But obviously, once you know, once people started losing their jobs, it became a lot less fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, uh, as someone who writes about finance, what is your overall assessment? of the economy today, although I guess things are, are really uncertain at this point, so it's hard to say, but what, what's your overall assessment of the economy in the world today? It's a very broad question, and what would you do with it? <laughs> um, I would say it's very, it's it's kind of in a recovery mode, but extremely fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, it does not, it will not take much to tip it back into recession in most countries or into recession in certain countries that have been growing strongly in recent years. Um, I mean, the UK is the obvious example of Brexit, but um, there's, a, there's a general sense that uh, the UK dodged a bullet after the, the referendum and that the kind of the worst forecast didn't happen. But I think people are underestimating the extent to which that is because none of the actual legal and, and economic in, uh, you know, direct implications of Brexit are actually pertinent yet because we haven't left the EU yet. Right, uh, right. Once that starts to bite, then I think that's going to be pretty painful. But but it's not just the UK. I think every other European country is, is not exactly in boom mode. Uh, there's still an awful lot of uh, volatility in currencies and credit and so on. That uh, it's, it's going to be very hard to get people back into what used to be normal. Um, I, I guess, it just seems to me like uncertainty would be sort of the order of the day with us elect, electing Trump, with the, the implications of Brexit still outstanding for you guys. Uh, it, like I can't imagine it, – it just seems like it's, it must be a huge question mark. I mean that's how I think it feels to a lot of us. Uh, who don't work in finance, who don't follow it closely. Uh, and I'm just wondering if that also is, is your perception of things. Is just, at this point, it's anybody, who knows, right? 
No, I absolutely agree. And I think the markets have, to the extent you can ascribe a will to the markets, the markets have made certain assumptions about what a, a Trump presidency means for the economy, but we really have no idea if that's true. Um, so, And if, if it turns out not to be true, then the markets will react. Um, my, my guess, and I, I, I don't say this lightly, and it's not necessarily a good thing, but my guess is you're going to have some, uh, quote-unquote, exciting stories to write in the coming years. Expect so. Uh, what is your day-to-day work like? Do you mainly look at data? Do you talk to people? Uh, what what is it like covering finance? Because I'm almost guessing, Chris, that you just wake up and you just look at a bunch of charts of stocks and you take notes and then later you write a story. Uh, it's kind of a mix of uh, talking to people on the phone, which is kind of the, the bulk of it, I would say. Who do you uh, talk to? Uh, in, you know, investors, bankers, lawyers. Okay. okay. Generally speaking, um, some analysts, that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, reading transaction documents, looking at credit analysis, that sort of thing. Sometimes going to court to you know, cover trials. Uh, yeah, that, that's the bulk of it. And then, uh, go, go ahead, sorry. I was just saying, I'm an editor, so a fair amount of meetings with management and that sort of thing as well. Oh, that's what I wondered too. If you like, I was imagining you sitting in editorial meetings, meetings, but you probably conduct then your own editorial meetings. Yeah. What's the worst thing about meetings? As someone who's a freelancer who just works at home, I never have meetings. I sometimes think it must be cool to have meetings. What is a good thing that I miss by having meetings? What do you hate about meetings? Uh, it's not necessarily a general property of meetings, but in practice, the thing I hate most about meetings is when most of the meetings that we have, because we're you know international company, there's usually someone dialing in from America or, or Asia uh, and trying to manage let, you know, speakerphone and people in the room at the same time is an absolute nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, you yeah. said you, you speak, uh, you grew up studying five or six languages. Uh, are there any of those that you use for work? Like, do you, do you have to, for instance, know Japanese? Uh, is, is your work at all require you to be multilingual? Actually, Asian languages aren't among the ones I properly learned. I did, I very briefly, I did like a month's Chinese crash course thing when I was going there for tourism. But uh, in terms of actually studying to any level of proficiency, no, it's all sort of German, French, Russian, Latin, that sort of thing. Um, the only one I really use for work, well, I suppose French and German I'd, I'd use for work, but it's, it's mostly just reading foreign press and... Um, Occasionally, uh, you know, legal documents, that sort of thing. Don't really conduct conversations in those languages. Right. Uh, I know you, you mentioned some cool places that you've traveled for work, but I'm more interested in places that you then went to voluntarily. Uh, you mentioned South America. Was that like a vacation thing? Yeah, I've got a friend who, uh, who lives out uh, on the border of Brazil and um, Paraguay and Argentina. Um, and so I went out to visit them for... Uh, a few weeks and, and to sort of south, well, mostly uh, northern Argentina, but uh, yeah, spent a bit of time in, in Foz de Iguazu, where the, the Iguazu Falls are. Um, uh, yeah, that was pretty good. And what did you do there? Just uh, look at cool things with your friend? Mostly, yeah. You know, visited various towns, uh, went to a winery for a while. Um, yeah, there's uh, northern Argentina is a, is a really good wine country, so... Uh, uh, spent a while out there um, enjoying fine food and wine um, and checking out the amazing sites. 
there's a good salt flats up there as well, so really spectacular scenery. What is it? A salt flat just sounds to me like a, a cool, flat, wide-open desert, right? Pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but way up high. Uh, it was up in the Andes. Uh, you also said you went to uh, Hong Kong once for vacation. Or wait, uh, you've been in China for vacation. Like, there was a certain point you're like, I'm going on vacation, I'm going to China. Uh, why China, and what was that like? Uh, well, uh, two reasons, really. One, just always wanted to go to China. Um, also, again, I had a friend who was uh, working out there for you know, briefly. And again, it was a chance to visit them and do a bit of touring. Um, this was pre... Actually, hang on, I'm not sure. Uh, no, this would have been just after the the, uh, the Hong Kong handover in, in 97. Right. It was 99, I think, um, for that particular trip. And yeah, so... Uh, Few days in Hong Kong, went over the border to Shenzhen, which is which was then just becoming what it is now, which is this kind of industrial powerhouse region, because um, uh, it's a special economic zone. Uh, but at the time, it was a, still a relatively small city, um, just over the border from Hong Kong. Uh, then took the train up to Shanghai, which is quite an experience. So 18 hours on a very uncomfortable uh, uh, hard back seats, uh, and then. Yeah, a, few, uh, a week there and then up to Beijing. Uh, why did you spend 18 hours on an uncomfortable train? Because it's cheaper than flying. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. Uh, China's domestic airlines don't have a particularly great safety record. Uh, was, and was, it, was it a crowded train? I'm interested in hearing about this train ride to Beijing. Uh, yeah, it's pretty crowded. I mean, when you, again, I, I haven't been for a while, so things may well have changed quite a lot, but... um. Uh, certainly at the time, you kind of have various options for these long distance train journeys, uh, sort of hard seat, soft seat, and then sort of sleeper, um, all of which obviously have different costs. And for that journey, we were on what are called hard seats, which is more or less what it sounds like. Uh, just very sort of straight back seats with not much upholstery. Uh, and so I think I ended up sleeping on the floor for about six hours of that trip. Um, uh, so those, those are the sorts of travel stories that I that I hear that I think, man, when I was younger, I could have easily done that. But these days, there's no way I could put up with that sort of thing. Uh, also, you would think they would come up with uh, some sort of euphemism for hard seats or soft seats, like, you know, like ec- economy class for a plane. You know, hard seats could be something like, uh, well, definitely not hard seats, you know, uh, bench comfort. You know, give it a name like that. Uh, don't don't let people know what they're in for so clearly with hard seats. Uh, it also sounds like you have the right idea when you go someplace for vacation. Is you don't go and stay in a hotel. You go and you stay with someone who lives there, who knows the area, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where else have you gotten to do that? Um, quite a few times in Germany. I've got quite a few friends out there. Um, so... Um, I think there is. Well, obviously, back, going back to the States, um, you know, most of my family lives in the States. So I've been back quite a lot to visit them and usually stay with them. What part of the country is that? Um, mostly in Illinois, uh, but also California, uh, Florida. Uh, what, in fun parts of California and Florida or non-fun parts? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what fun parts of Florida there are, to be honest. Uh, yeah, generally, uh, it, it was uh, San Francisco at the time for California. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm trying to think where. Uh, in Florida, it was um, Melbourne. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. Like, I think fun parts of Florida are places that you would see in, uh, like, places that kids go for spring break. You think of those as, uh, that, that, that's obviously got to be a lot of fun. And there's probably boring parts in Florida where a bunch of retirees live. I'm a bit of an old fogey. Spring break sounds pretty horrific to me. You know what? It kind of does, doesn't it? It's kind of it. It sounds about as much fun as as being on a hard bench for eighteen hours on a train. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the the place where that was, it was um, it's quite near uh, Cape Canaveral, so as a bit of a space nerd, that was quite fun. Uh, you said your brother is French and he's six years older than you. Now I can imagine it must have been difficult growing up with a brother who's six years older than you, because he probably picked on you. But the only thing to make that worse is if he was French. Uh, he was born in France anyway. Um, and yeah, that makes him French. He, you could you could make fun of your brother and call him French. Um, I'm sure I did at one point. Um, <laughs> uh, how much did you get picked on as a kid, having a six-year-old older brother? Not all that much to understand, partly because my, my brother went to boarding school, so after about, uh, by the time I was about eight-ish, didn't see all that much of him. Ah. Uh, do you remember what's the, well, you may not have an answer to this. I was going to ask, what's the worst thing he ever did to you? Oh. <laughs> um, probably rather not safe, to be honest. <gasps> Whoa, that traumatic. Chris, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> now everybody's imagination is running overtime with terrible, terrible things. So you should set our our, our minds at ease and tell us what it is, because it can't be as awful as what we're imagining. Um, uh, I might come up with an alternative then. But uh, Did you, here I'll give you. I, I remember hearing one of the, uh, the the Baldwin brothers are you know like Alda Baldwin and Billy Baldwin, and uh, I remember hearing one of them, and I forget which one, talking about how the older ones would torment the younger ones, and one of the Baldwin brothers, so I didn't grow up with brothers, I grew up with a younger sister, so I I never received the brunt of this kind of attention, but I remember one of the Baldwin brothers talking about being rolled up in a carpet, you know, so that you can't move, and the carpet, like, put in a bathtub and the water turned on. And being left there, like thinking they're going to drown. I remember hearing about that and thinking, oh, my God, what hell it must have been growing up with older brothers. Uh, so it wasn't like that for you, it sounds like. No. Uh, okay, so uh, no childhood trauma from your older brother. What does he do these days? He's a teacher. Ah, very cool. Well, what kind of teaching and where? He teaches classics, uh, which is you know, Latin, Greek. Yeah, yeah. Um, in uh, Derbyshire, which is kind of in the Midlands. Uh, your brother sounds really cool. A classics yeah. teacher. I like that. Uh, okay, very good. Uh, okay, now you and your brother, I'm assuming that the, when you were asked, hey, Chris, what sort of game would you like to talk about on a podcast? Uh, obviously, this is stuff from your childhood. Uh, does your brother figure it all into this gaming that you did that you want to talk about today? Only in, in a kind of origin story kind of way, which I suppose mm-hmm. is a meaningful way, I guess. Uh, but he's not, he's not even remotely a gamer. Uh, he's a pretty big technophobe, actually. Uh, but my very first computer was actually his computer. Uh, we, uh, my parents got him a uh, BBC Micro which you may or may not, I think you, uh, the podcast with Chappers, I think you talked about it a little bit. Yep. Um, it's this uh, computer that the BBC put together 
back in the early 80s uh, as part of a sort of government contract for schools. Uh, so it's kind of the educational uh, sort of higher powered computer that was competing with the ZX Spectrum, uh, which was the, the more gaming oriented and much cheaper uh, mass market uh, uh, sort of computer of the people. Uh, but yeah, but uh, so, so I basically kind of inherited that um, or at least the use of it uh, when my brother decided he didn't really care about computers. Uh, real quick, I want to ask, uh, did you get a lot of hand-me-downs from him? Like, did you have to wear his clothes? Yes. Yeah, I can understand. Okay, that's traumatic. That's, there you go. I think that sounds like a traumatic thing that you must have suffered having an older brother. So you got his computer hand-me-down, uh, and did it have these games installed? Or what, okay, so talk me through this. You get this computer that had been your brother's you know, years ago. Uh, what's on it? What do you do with it? Uh, key things, really. One... Um one of my uncles was um, uh, into well, computing of all sorts, and he taught me basic, uh, which is kind of one of the things that the thing was creative for, so it's kind of teach children to code. Uh, so that kind of got me into programming at a fairly young age, not I did much with it. Uh, but also it had famously, the BBC Micro was the, the first kind of platform that Elite was released on, uh, which is this seminal uh yeah, you know, game in the UK and, and Europe, which seemed to be largely overlooked in the States until Elite. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was going to say I know what it is, but yeah, you guys might have gotten a jump start on it, right? Because those are those guys who made it are British, right? Indeed, it was uh, David Braben and Ian Bell. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that that kind of was what really sucked me in uh, into gaming in general. That that one game, but there are others. There were, you know, they had, you know, your usual. Um, Sort of arcadey games like yeah, you guys probably know Chucky Egg. Um, Chucky Egg, what? Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> it sounds terrible. Oh, no, it's fantastic. It's a sort of ladder-based platformer. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, Are you saying Chucky Egg like Chucky that psychopathic doll and egg like that Hensley? Basically, yeah. You run around levels picking up eggs, and your character is called Chucky. I think. Huh, okay, yeah, I, I'd never heard of that, but but folks your age who grew up with computer games would know Chucky Egg. Certainly Brits would, yeah. Okay, right. Um, uh, another, there was a great series on the BBC uh, called uh, Repton, which, to describe it to a kind of a modern audience, is probably somewhere between sort of Steamworld Dig and uh, Dig Dug, um, Around, uh, yeah, you're basically sort of tunneling through Earth, uh, sort of kind of a 2D plane, uh, and you've got to be, uh, yeah, sort of cross between those games and I don't know if you know Stephen Sausage Roll, uh, which is this rock hard puzzle game that came out last year, uh, where you basically every single move you have to make, you have to carefully plan it out, or you'll mess up the uh, the solution of the puzzle. And same thing in Repton, if you because the bold as you tunnel out the earth, if you if there's a boulder that's sort of sitting above the, the earth that you've tunneled out, it'll come crashing down. You you can't be underneath that when it falls down. So you have to plan out your moves ahead. Uh, Already, this sounds way way better than Chucky Egg. I think yeah, it probably is a more robust game design. Yeah, and it also had a fantastic soundtrack for the time. Uh, so these are the games you kind of grew up with with your brother's computer. By the way, with Elite. Did you were you capable of manually docking? Uh, I was indeed, uh, but not okay. 
I did crash an awful lot as well. I'll, I'll gladly admit that. But it's not like you couldn't play unless you had the automatic docking module or whatever. Like, you knew Elite well enough. That's what sets the Elite, uh, like, wannabes from the Elite actual hardcore players. Is the ones who sat down and actually went through the docking procedure and matched the rolling of the space station. Uh, if you had the patience to do that, you are an elite, elite player. Everyone else is just a pretender, I feel. Yeah. I will freely admit that it, the, the docking computer was the first thing I bought for every game. But, uh, 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 in that case, I'm a little disappointed in you, Chris. But you still have to, you have to do a fair amount of trading to, to even be able to afford the docking computer. So. That is true. That's sort of like, I don't know if you ever did flight simulators, but uh, a big deal in flight simulators, anybody can fly a flight simulator. You know, anybody can take off and you can try to shoot something. The, what separates the boys from the men in flight simulators is, can you land the plane? Uh, and it's like that with docking in Elite. Uh, yeah. uh, so, okay, so, so you've got these early games. That what the, the games you want to talk about are games that I confess I do not know. I know one of them, like what, and they did a sequel. I know one Bitmap Brothers game, but when I looked at the Wikipedia page, everything else I was like, huh, what? I didn't know any of these. Uh, so explain these games and yeah, because all of this is, is to me is Greek to me. I don't know any of these games, Chris. You said yeah, in the U.S., folks might know Speedball. I have no idea what that is. In that case, I'm guessing the one you know is Z. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Although I don't, even, we don't call it that. It's called Z. <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah, I because was, I was like an RTS guy at that point, and I vaguely remember the Z games being uh, real-time strategy games from that point. But there are other stuff I, I means I don't know any of those. Yeah, yeah no, so as I was saying before, they were, they were kind of, um, along with Sensible Soccer, they were the, the kind of two pillars of the, what's generally called Britsoft these days, which is sort of late 80s, early 90s, more or less indie uh, development scene. Um the, the cliche with the Bitmap Brothers in particular is that they were the they were the first quote unquote rock star developers uh, in terms of making the, the developers the the face of a game as a business publisher and indeed ha- you know, having the developers have a face at all so you know they did all sorts of publicity shots and, and all that sort of stuff um, but they kind of grew up out of the the whole bedroom coding scene that that the very you know the existence of things like the Spectrum and the BBC Micro kind of encouraged because we never really had a a sort of big corporate console scene in, in the UK at that time. Um, yeah, the NES wasn't even marketed in Europe. Um, uh, and they made these amazing sort of arcadey, but not sort of fully arcade games. Um, so the two kind of ones they're probably most famous for uh, are Xenon 2 and Speedball 2, and both of them are, you know, as the names would suggest, these sequels to, uh, you know, the, the first games in Xenon and Speedball, they were both good, but they were they were very much sort of uh, demonstrations of principle rather rather than finished products. And then they hit the ball out of the park with the with the follow-ups, and they were, they were uh, you know, one accusation you can you can level at them is that they're kind of a bit of style over substance. They they have these amazing. Uh, soundtracks, which were you know some of the first games to use licensed music. So you had Xenon Two uh, had this uh, hip hop track, the Mega Blast, uh, which was sampled on, on the intro music and then uh, you know, remixed for the for the in-game music, which was at the time kind of revolutionary. 
and just sounded very cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Speedball 2 had, had original music, um, but again, an amazing soundtrack. But the thing that kind of really made Speedball 2 as a game uh, was it was, again, it's coming out of this tradition of um, player manager games that you had in, in coming from you know, soccer games in, in the UK and in Europe generally. So you'd have both, you know, the games would involve both you playing in individual matches of the sport, uh, but also uh, you know, managing the team and you know, making, uh, you know, buying and selling players, training and that sort of stuff. Uh, there wasn't, there are a lot of games that combine the two rather than focusing on one or the other, like, you know, out of the park baseball would, uh, in the States or, um, or football manager indeed, uh, for the soccer. Uh, they just combine the two and Speedball did that, but for, uh, basically this made up future sport, which was, sorry. Well, that's, that's, that's exactly then why I don't know speedball. I'm sure that I just wrote it off as a sports game uh, because I didn't grow up with sports and I wouldn't have played. You know, there, there were lots of sports games in early computing, and uh, I completely had no interest in those. So I'm just assuming I saw this and assumed it was some kind of sports thing. Uh, explain to me this future sport. Uh, it's basically um, – well, did you ever play, uh, like, brutal sport football or um, – uh, well, it's, uh, the, the best way to describe it is, is um, more or less kind of like soccer, but meets pinball. Uh, and so you, you kick the ball and bounce it off the walls, like that kind of thing. Well, you throw the ball, but you've got to, you know, you've got goals at either end. Um, but you're playing on this sort of metal pitch, which has various uh, points, bumpers, and things like that. Features on the pitch that let you score points and do other things, like power ups. Effectively, um, there's nine players on the team, including the goalie for each side. Uh, and you're basically chucking the ball to each other um, in between the two goals, you know, in, in sort of the where the penalty line will be in a sorry, the offside line will be in a hockey pitch. There's a um, there's just a bumper that you can throw it against for two points. Um, on the sides, there's like a a loop de loop thing that if you throw it through, you get a score multiplier. There's a warp thing on either side, uh, so if you chuck it in that, it the ball warps to the other side of the pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a, a sort of a, an energizer, which if you throw it against the energizer, the ball gets electrified effectively. And if it touches the opponent, they'll fall over. Uh, I was going to ask about that. Like if there were exploding bombs or any spike traps or anything like that, that's, I like that electrifying ball. Very good. Yeah. Um, and also you can just slide tackle you know, your opponents. So a very common tactic is just to throw the ball at the goalie, run at the goalie, kick him, and the ball will just go straight in the net. <laughs> uh, what does this look like? Like, how would you describe... What you're describing, I'm getting a, a strong visual picture, but graphics back then, I'm guessing it was all pretty perfunctory? Uh, well, I mean, the bitmaps... I mean, one of the things about the bitmaps is they have this very distinctive visual style, which is kind of you know, metallic, a lot of specular highlights, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I think the artist on Swebel 2, I think, guy called Dan Malone, I believe, Mark, Mark Coleman. Um, uh, and they, they've got this, uh, the, when you see the portraits of the players, they have this very, it's very stylized look of this sort of flat, fairly square faces with rounded edges, uh, which is very uh, stylistic. Um, but it's, it's basically a top-down, somewhat isometric view um, with a sort of metallic pitch, lots of sort of riveted plates, that sort of thing. Now, I, kn- I know for a fact when you're saying pitch, you mean field. 
just That's translating right. for the listeners here, yeah. Uh, and is Speedball one of the the the, er, the earliest games that that you knew? Did you know Xenon before Speedball? Um, well, uh, Speedball Two. I'm mainly talking about there was there was a Speedball obviously came before Speedball Two. I think the first one was Xenon, uh, then Speedball, then uh, I think then Xenon Two, and then Speedball Two. But Cadaver might have been before them. But, but uh, as a young kid, I'm just curious how you discovered Bitmap Brothers, if it think, would have been through Speedball. I think I played Xenon 2 at a friend's house, and then that got me into the Bitmap Brothers, and then I bought Speedball 2 for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you said, Cadaver? Yeah. That sounds like a zombie game. I'm on board with this one. What is Cadaver? It's not... It's... it's um, I, again, you probably won't know these reference games but it's kind of very much in the uh, spirit of a game called Night Law which was a huge game for the um, the Spectrum uh, and possibly the BBC as well they're sort of isometric uh, adventure puzzle games sort of the, the British equivalent of Zelda I guess but much more uh, uh, constrained I guess there's no kind of uh, overworld it's just a series of screens uh, and you, yeah, you solve the puzzle in an individual room You've got a small inventory, uh, lots of switch and jumping based puzzles, basically. And Cadaver was the kind of evolution of that, of, of that Night Law, Save Wolf kind of uh, style of game. It sounds much uh, darker than Zelda. Yes. Yeah. I'm on board it. with that, by the way. Zelda was always a little too precious for me. Uh, yeah, so, um, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, and the, the bitmaps were kind of renowned for their games being particularly difficult. And I, I think I played the demo of Cadaver back when games had demos. And uh, I don't know I ever got out of the first room. Whoa, wow. That's pretty serious. Okay. Well, this was a time, too. Games, it used to be that games could be difficult. That's kind of verboten in modern design. Uh, you can't make games difficult these days. It'll discourage players, and they'll go off and play something else. Yeah. Uh, actually, on that point, um, before we move off people too, if, we, if we're going to... Um, the other kind of aspect of it is you kind of combine, you almost call it a roguelike these days, in that um, the, the management side of it, basically you were building up this team from the bottom, or team called Brutal Deluxe, uh, and you, in the, in the European style, you have there are two divisions to the, this speedball league. Um, and so you're trying to you know, improve your players through training and, and buying in new players. Uh, and if you get, if you do well enough in the first season, you get promoted to the higher division, and obviously then it becomes even more difficult. Uh, uh, but if you don't win the, uh, the the upper division in that second season, it's game over. Mm-hmm. There's no kind of ongoing uh, league. You just you, you have to win it within that two seasons, uh, or you just have to start all over again, which these uh, days would be a very odd game design. Hey, well, yeah, it's a very roguelike thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, is uh, is your Did you like name your your teammates and stuff? Is that dynamic at all? Did you always have the same dudes? Uh, I, I can't remember. I don't think you could change the names, but um, there were, like I say, you'd, you'd be buying and selling uh, different players, so your your dudes would have different names. And there, were, there was, certain of the players would be star players, and they just have much better stats than anyone else. Mm-hmm. They were way more expensive, and they had cooler art. 
so in given that there was this management aspect to it, what were the actual were, were the actual matches things it sounds like from you describing it, the matches are things that the players actually do. Like you're actually playing a match, right? It's not like it unfolds based on the stats and you just watch it. No, no, you're you're controlling you know the closest player to the ball all the time, basically. Oh, right, because that, that's how, like, how soccer games work, is you can't control all 11 dudes on a soccer team, so you're just moving around the dude who's closest to the ball, right? Like, that's a convention with sports games, isn't it? Indeed. And it, it plays very much like, and, and they freely acknowledge the influence, uh, again, from that, that other pillar of Brits off the sensible soccer, which, uh, again, in Europe was probably the biggest game of the 90s. Yeah, you used that term before, and I can't what, sensible soccer, implying that soccer itself is is not sensible. And I, well, it was, the developer was sensible software. So ah, you, okay. You must know Pan Potter, surely. That, uh, yeah, I don't know that, but it made it. It sounds to me like they're they're uh, passing a value judgment on on soccer. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, Speedball Two, uh, did did it have? Is it something you could play with someone else? Yeah, I had more to say, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you ever play with your brother? I I might well have done once or twice, but like I say, by that stage, I think he'd completely gone off gaming. Uh, was Speedball 2 something you remember playing with your friends at all? Like, do you remember having multiplayer matches, or was it mainly something that you did solitaire? No, I, def- I definitely played some multiplayer with friends, but, uh, but I think it's mainly mainly single-player for the mm-hmm. campaign. Uh, are there any modern games that recall or that you feel are in any way indebted to Speedball 2? Is it a dead video game evolutionary branch, or do you think it influenced any games that I might know of today? Uh, well, I think it definitely influenced in the, in the kind of near term. Uh, you could make an argument for something like um, Frozen uh, Cortex, I guess. Oh, right, right, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you yeah, know, obviously it plays out very differently. Um, but was was this sports management uh, genre, which is big nowadays, did that exist concurrently with Speedball 2? Speedball 2 didn't invent sports management games, did it? No, no. no. I, mean, okay. I mean, it's not... It's the, the management side of it is pretty light. Um, certainly, I think... I'm trying to think when... Yeah, Speedball 2 was, I think, 91. And uh, what is now Football Manager used to be called Championship Manager. I think that... I don't know when it really first started, but it kind of really... The, the kind of landmark versions of that one, sort of 92, 93. Uh, so it was definitely around in that scene. But even before then, I remember playing on the, on the BBC, there was a, a player-manager game, um, which had a similar dynamic in terms of light management um, uh, and also you know, doing the whole closest player to the ball uh, kind of arcade sports style. Uh, and then also in the, in the sort of predecessor the, the kind of the big soccer game before Sensible Soccer was uh, a kickoff, uh, which was again brutally difficult. Uh, and the same developer of that they had a, a player manager game, which is again sort of kept the on-field playing, but also get, had the management side of it. So it's definitely not a not something people too created. Right. Uh, when you were a kid, and even now, are you into sports? Like, do you follow soccer? Uh, I follow it, but not massively closely. Um, I, I've been following baseball a bit more recently, not partly, um, as I mentioned, my family's from Illinois, so uh, having the Cubs win uh, this World Series last time was quite something. Um, yeah, that bit, mean, I, someone had to explain to me the significance of that. She'd actually 
had tickets and she was actually at one of the games and yeah. it was a huge big emotional thing for her because that's her you know she's from that area and I completely didn't understand why she cared so much uh, but yeah it's a big deal for you guys isn't yeah. It? yeah so you don't feel that way like for instance uh, these are the only two things I know how to say when talking about soccer but you don't really like you're not uh, let me ask you this and see how you respond Chris Arsenal or Manchester United for me neither and is that a viable way? Did I just say something that someone who knows soccer would actually ask? Did I do that correctly? Um, I'm not sure. It depends who they were speaking to, I guess. Uh, but those but are like two soccer teams, right? Like that's that's a viable question. Know, I'd ask someone, which of these soccer teams do you like, right? Yeah. Um, but you might well get a response as that, like the one from me, because I, I support Oxford myself, so I don't really care about either Arsenal or Man U. Uh, so, but yeah, I'm just I'm just practicing in case I have to have to pretend that I know about sports to someone who is British. Uh, I just wanted to make sure I got the phrasing correct. Yeah. Uh, so, Speedball Two uh, was a formative game for you. It was obviously a big hit for Bitmap Brothers. Uh, I know only they're uh, they've actually done so. They did Z, which you called Z, and they did Z Two. And the last thing I know of that they did, which I think looking on Wikipedia was the last thing they did, was a World War II real-time strategy game. So at some point, they were like, hey, let's make real-time strategy games. Uh, were you into Bitmap Brothers at that point? Did you like those games? Bizarrely enough, I've never actually played any of the other RTS titans, despite that being one of my favorite genres in general these days. Um, I think by that point, I was playing, you know, like of Dune 2. And, you know, Command and Conquer and so on. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yes, yeah, so I never actually played those ones. Uh, it does kind of feel like they came in, like they, they, they were upstaged. They were always upstaged by some other RTS. Like the Z game was always a kind of a, an also ran, uh, the sort of B level. If you, if you, if you weren't for whatever reason playing one of the real RTS as well, there was this little one. Uh, that's kind of how I always saw the Z games. Um, uh, what besides the Z games, Speedball and Xenon, is that pretty much their uh, their their body of work? Am I, are there other things that we would know them from? There's one that you I would not expect you to know, and I doubt many listeners of the podcast would even know, called uh, Magic Pockets. Which is a, <laughs> that sounds really dirty. <laughs> it, it kind of comes across weirdly dirty as well. Um, it's a uh, it's a platformer. It's, it's a fairly bog standard platform. It's well done, but uh, it's not hugely memorable. Other than the, the kind of core mechanic is this guy is this kid who's got uh, magic pockets and he chucks whirl, chucks whirlwinds out of them basically, or he chucks various things. But um, at the start of the game, your your main power is, is a whirlwind thing, and just the longer you hold down the fire button, uh, the bigger the whirlwind gets uh, before it's released. Um, but it's fairly, there's nothing other than the soundtrack, which again has had a sort of licensed uh, music, it was pretty cool. Um, it's not massively memorable. Uh, but the other one uh, that was particularly memorable, and at the time was kind of, uh, it, it certainly made a lot of bold claims. I think a lot of the claims it made didn't really, if you look at them in the history of gaming, doesn't don't really stack up, but uh, they seemed quite impressive at the time. It was this game called Gods. Uh, or also known as Gods into the Wonderful, I think, because uh, of the soundtrack again. Really good soundtrack again, which I highly recommend people to uh, look for on YouTube. Uh, but it was kind of 
a British answer to the sort of Metroidvania genre. Uh, that may be uh, picking it up a bit too much. I don't think anyone who's played Super Metroid would, would think all that much of gods in that respect, but it's a kind of puzzle slash action platformer uh, where you're you know, constantly opening up new areas, getting new abilities. Um, the thing that the, one of the things that about which claims were made for it at the time was that you had like an AI uh, sort of familiar, uh, or you had one of various AI familiars that will follow you around and help you out, either shooting enemies or protecting you, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and had uh, relatively sophisticated enemy sort of AI patterns as well for the time. Uh, and it also just it looked amazing. Now, so uh, where what happened to Bitmap Brothers? Do we know? Um, well, they, the company kind of still technically exists, um, but oh. it's basically just one of the. It was founded by three guys, um, and I think now it's just uh, Mike Montgomery who kind of owns all the IP. Um, they're not doing sort of active development in their own right. They're kind of they've they've licensed out HD remakes and that sort of thing. An iOS port. Um, and do you know? Did they go on to to work at other game companies, or they just decided we're done and we're sitting on our uh, filthy lucre and we're not going to make any more games? Um, I think some of them went on to, to other game companies, um, and I think some of them didn't. Basically, uh, but, I just they did still have a website up that looked definitely like a website from you know 1992 or whatever. But uh, Matt Brothers still has a, an active website. Uh, yeah. uh, so uh, you, you said your one of your favorite genres is RTSs. Um, do, do you know about this World War II Frontline Command thing? Like I think which I think was their last game. Don't believe so. No. Yeah, it looks really cool because I, I vaguely recall it. But uh, if if I were to look at their games, uh, I think that might be one that could possibly hold up. I can't imagine any of these others holding up. Well. Would Speedball 2, like, would you ever consider, like, finding Speedball 2 on an emulator and playing it again? Oh, I have done. I mean, I've oh. bought the various remakes, and most of the remakes are, are, are not good. There's a there's an iOS port, which is surprisingly good, if you can handle the uh, on-screen controls. Um, it's, it actually it's, looks like Speedball 2? It's like a port of Speedball 2? The iOS version is, yeah. The, the wow. HD remake you can get on PC is, looks terrible. Um because they 3D, 3D-ified it, and it just doesn't work. Um, but yeah, I've got an emulated version. I play it all the time. Oh, Speedball, so you're, you're asserting, Chris, that Speedball 2 holds up. Oh, totally. There's all of these, like, Wayne Gretzky hawker games and uh, winning 11 soccer games and whatnot. And in that context, Speedball 2 does hold up. Totally. Well, to be fair, I think, uh, I think a lot of sports games from that, more or less that era, hold up really well. You know, the best... The best hockey game is NHL 96. The best Madden game is 94. Okay, explain this to me, uh, Chris, because it seems to me, as a guy who follows video games, it's one of those bits, it's one of those industries in entertainment where the sequel's almost always better than the predecessor, right? Like, that's something that you don't tend to see in movies, uh, books, whatever. Uh, but in games, you almost always go to the most recent one. Uh, why on earth would Madden 94 be better than Madden 2017? Because it's much more arcadey, basically. Um, the arcade sports genre has more or less died out. Um, and 
the, the you know, current Madden's, current NHL's, you know, they're, they're perfectly decent simulations, um, but they're absurdly overcomplicated, uh, and you can't just have a simple sort of arcade play around in the way that you used to, or indeed with you know some of the, you know, the, the actually explicitly arcade spin-offs like NBA Street and that sort of thing, which again the, they don't do that anymore. Um, or indeed NBA Jam um, way back when. That's that's really surprising to me, Chris. That 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 a huge franchise like Madden, obviously Electronic Arts wants everybody to buy it and play it. Uh, that it gets more and more complicated rather than more arcadey. Like I would, I'm very surprised to hear that as someone who's no, who knows nothing about sports games. They've got, they've got that dedicated audience of you know, Madden fans and two uh, K NBA two K fans that you know they know the games inside out. They want the extra complexity every year, um, which yeah, fair enough. But uh, it's quite alienating if you're a casual player, and certainly uh, if you're looking for that uh, you know, quick pick-and-play experience. And actually, now that I think of it, I'm guessing that a lot of folks who buy Madden are folks who actually follow real football and are more interested in a simulation rather than an ar- a simplified arcade experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, you've, you've just reinforced my desire to not play sports games. <laughs> Uh, let's talk RTSs because you said that was one of your favorite genres. Uh, what's the last real-time strategy game that you played? Uh, as in last one I played or the most recent release? Uh, the last one you played, even if it was an older one. Uh, Homeworld does as a character. Ah, so that's yeah, that's Homeworld, but without the 3D, which I always felt Homeworld never needed. <laughs> Are you with me there? Are you get it because a lot of people are like, "Yeah, Homeworld was the only RTS that did true 3D." Uh, it, you know, it's special for that reason. Uh, I always felt that that that, that Z-axis is, is unnecessary in a real-time strategy game, and Deserts of Karak agrees with me. I don't think it lost all that much uh, by not having it, or, or I don't think Homeworld gained all that much by having the Z-axis. But I did. I do kind of uh, miss it, nonetheless. Uh, what, what do you think of that Deserts of Karak? Sins and not having it in there in any realistic, you know, any real sense was um, it, it felt weirdly constricting. Wait, wait, back up because I'm sorry, I was talking over you. What felt weirdly constricting? The, the z-axis or the not having the z-axis? Not having the z-axis in, in Sins. Uh, oh, felt weirdly constricting. You're saying, particularly when you got you know, when you got these thousand ship fleets. Maybe I'm slightly exaggerating there, but uh, you know, certainly in the dozens, if not hundreds, uh, having them all be on one plane just it felt a bit weird. Um, I guess that yeah, because I do, th- I, I am remembering now. You know, in Homeworld, you could have a formation stack up, like be a, a vertical square of fighters or whatever, uh, as far as the real estate that it would occupy. Uh, and in that regard, yeah, the 3D was helpful. I guess I tend to think of the 3D as something like, hey. I could attack from above or below. Uh, you know, I could I, I could be way above the z-axis or way below it. Uh, but as far as letting ships fill 3D space, uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I did appreciate that. Um, uh, what what? So tell me a bit about what you think of this Deserts of Karak game. You obviously it's what you've played most recently, right? Yeah, I mean, I've only really just just started getting into the campaign, so I didn't I didn't have an awful lot to think about it because I've only unlocked a few. Of it. The missions uh, and units, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it seems pretty fun so far. 
um, definitely bringing back the memories of the original Homeworld. I like that kind of dune aesthetic of like being out in the yeah. desert uh, and, the, and all the big trucks and whatnot. It looks pretty cool. Indeed. Lots of things buried in the sand. Yeah. Uh, all right, so you are on a desert island. You're only allowed to bring one real-time strategy game with you. What will it be? It's what you're, you're going to be on this desert island for at least 10 years before you're rescued. What RTS are you bringing? Does it have to be an RTS RTS or any strategy game that's not turn-based? Uh, hmm, that's an interesting question. I'm wondering where you'd go with it. So I'm going to, have to, I'm going to say it has to be a real-time strategy game. You have to be comfortable calling it an RTS. Okay, Company of Heroes then. Ah, interesting. Well, you mean, of course, Company of Heroes 2 because the most recent one is <laughs> always the better, right? No, I do not mean Company of Heroes <laughs> Why? What's wrong with Company of Heroes 2? Well, to be fair, I haven't played it all that much recently, but uh, I, I just never got on with it. Um, yeah. Either a sort of, you know, prestiging type, you know, mechanics, and but also just even in the even ignoring all the uh, the, the buffs and you know, commanders and things like that, um, I just the, the the just moment-to-moment gameplay never quite felt quite as tight as as in the original. Well, well, that's the thing, too, is the original really doesn't need a sequel. The original is still so very good, isn't it? Like, there's nothing in the original where I'm thinking, eh, I wish they'd change this, or this could use some updating. Uh, the original plays and looks as good as it did when it came out, as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. Uh, what, what side do you play, and what, uh, I forget what they call them, the little factions or the generals, or, you know, you pick one of the three flavors of a side once you get a few command points. Uh what do you tend to prefer? Uh, probably uh, most of the time, probably American Airborne. Um, you know, that's the that's Chris. I'm disappointed in you. That's like the easy beginner <laughs> mode. Everybody goes for the American Airborne. Just spam the map with paratroopers. Chris, come on! I expected more from I you. And um, also the Wehrmacht. Uh, I'm not. I don't really have a favorite. Um, the Luftwaffe is quite fun, but uh, um, for the Flak 88s, but. Um, but I don't really have a favorite uh, command line. How do you feel about what they did with uh, your people? I'm just going to throw that out there, you know, because there's the, the British that, that have this weird idea of, I think it's like they pack their bases up and move them around. For some reason, they, they believe the British are, I'm going to roll this back at you, Chris. For some reason, Relic believes that the British should be peripatetic. <laughs> Indeed. Well, you say that, and yet they're the best turtlers in the game, uh, with the trenches and the uh, and all the emplacements. Yeah. Uh, so, have, have you have you played online recently? Um, well, not unless you count. Uh, there's um, there's a joint ops mod, uh, which is kind of like co-op against the AI. I've played a bit of that with some friends, but uh, I haven't really done competitive uh, heroes in the last year or so. Uh, it actually didn't occur to me to wonder what kind of mods there have been, or even if there have been mods. What What is this joint ops thing? Uh, well, I pretty much described it, really. It's a series of um, co-op missions against the AI. Uh, they're usually kind of insurmountable odd scenarios. Uh, so it's not just a skirmish against a, an AI opponent. It's not like no, a, a, a traditional comp stomp. Scripted mission kind of things. For the most part, there there, there are... There are some that are effectively skirmishes, but uh, but with with scripted elements. But yeah. Uh, uh, so being a real time strategy 
player, you have obviously, like most of the other ones, gone over to playing MOBAs, right? Like you're obviously really big into League of Legends. I do actually play a lot of Dota, but... Uh, Ew, really? <laughs> I was hoping you would say no. Wow, why Dota instead of League of Legends? Well, to be quite honest, I've just never played League of Legends. Uh, I downloaded Dota when it was uh, in beta. It may still be in beta for all I know, but uh, when it was a sort of definitely still a beta, um, downloaded and tried it then. Um, it kind of sucked it in. But I, when I say I play Dota, 90% of the time I'm just playing bot matches as something to pass the time while I'm doing something else. Uh, I don't really play it competitively at all. And I'm now, I don't. Why do you like my problem with games like League of Legends and Dota? Actually, MOBAs in general uh, is that I'm only ten percent of what is going on. You know, when you play Company of Heroes, you are fifty percent of what's going on. There's you, and there's the other faction. When you are playing Dota or League of Legends, there's you and the four other people on your team against the five people on the other team. So when you're playing a Dota match against bots, you're only playing ten percent of the game. But it, think of it like a team sport. So the same reason you don't like sports ah. games, like MOBAs. Uh, conversely, I quite like you know arcade sports games, and it's it's basically an arcade sports game with wizards. Chris, that might be you. I, I this is a learning moment for me. Uh, <laughs> I mean that that's a very that's a very astute observation, and that might be a lot of why I don't like MOBAs and a lot of why they're popular. It is kind of like a team sport. It's like playing football or soccer or something. I'd never even thought of that. Well put. Uh, all right. Uh, okay, so other than RTSs, I mean, I know you've got a wide range of video game interests like me. Uh, what are you playing lately besides Deserts of, of Karak? Um, I've been working my way through Doom, uh, which I kind of picked out when it came out, but I didn't... I'm not much of a shooter person in general, so mm-hmm. I kind of I've been playing it in short bursts, mm-hmm. like once a month, do uh, a few levels, and then and go go back to other stuff. Um, what else? Not Gremlins Inc. <laughs> yet. Uh, let's see. Um, do you are you the type of person who ends up like buying a lot of games on Steam during the winter sale? Do you, did you fall for that kind of thing? Um, I. These days, I usually only pick up sort of one or two games on sale uh, each. Um, uh, yeah, each each sale. So I'm I'm not too bad on that front. I've been trying to clear my backlog as well. Um, yeah. So. Uh, play a lot of American Truck Simulator. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, why? Yeah, it's fantastic podcast gaming for a start. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, I just it also obviously we had the it had the rescale recently, so that was a good excuse to jump back into it. And and what did it make a difference? I haven't looked at it since the rescale. Did it make a difference? First of all, explain what that is and uh, let me know. Do, do you think it made much of a difference? Oh yeah, I, it, it feels very different. It feels much much like European Truck Simulator does, um, which is a much you know, before yeah you know, things that it's basically double the length of time it takes to do a, a, a trip, um, and that's. You know, beyond the, the sort of the physical uh, differences in terms of how the how things like junctions are laid out and, and how the landscape looks and that sort of stuff. Because roads are wider as well, right? Or, or no, it's just the length of distance no, between it's, cities. It's yeah, it's more. It's like it's like how the universe is expanding. You know, it's more the, the the things don't expand, but the space between them expands. <laughs> okay. you, you've just put American Truck Simulator in a sort of cosmological terms. I like that. 
Uh, and do you have a, an ongoing driver in American Truck Simulator? Are you running a company yet? Yeah, I think I've got about eight eight drivers in my company. Ah, you are serious okay. about your American Truck Simulator, Chris. Very good. Uh, what is your company called? Um, oh, go truck yourself. No way. Seriously? <laughs> Uh, all right, very good. Go truck yourself. I like that quite a bit. Well, this leads me to my final question for you, Chris. Uh, why on earth? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just make a guess. You have red hair. I do. Aha! That's what ginger yellow is a reference to, correct? Yeah. What's the yellow part? Uh, basically, I'm an Oxford. You know, talking about my football fandom or otherwise, uh, I'm an Oxford United fan uh, and. Generically speaking, Oxford United fans are, are yellows. And um, when I first got an online persona, as it were, it was on an Oxford United message board back in like 2002 or something. Um, actually, no, it must have been earlier than that. It's been 29. Uh, and, you know, there were lots of XYZ yellows. Uh, and so I was ginger yellow. Uh, I have to say, I always just seen your name on the forum for some reason, I always assumed it was like some sort of Paul, Perils of Pauline character. Like I was just imagining some woman named Ginger Yellow who kept having to be rescued by the superhero dude. Uh, so probably not what you had in mind, but that's what it sounded like to my American ears. It's weird to me, and I think to a lot of Americans, that people with red hair are called gingers. Well, ginger is the color. But ginger is like a spice, like that stuff that you cut up and you put in like Chinese food or whatever. Like ginger, uh, yeah. To, to, and is it an is it an insult? Um, in in the sense that there there is a kind of cultural uh, antipathy towards gingers in general. Hence, it's not that ginger the word is an insult. It's that people make fun of people for being ginger. See, that's not my experience either. Why is that? Like, why? I think red hair is pretty awesome. Uh, do you have? British. Sorry, I'm sorry. Say again. It's a British thing. Oh, that the British have some weird issue with redheads. All right. Uh, do you have freckles? Uh, somewhat, yes, but not not massively so. My arms are quite freckly, but not my face. Do you like your freckles? And there's a reason I'm asking you this. I'm indifferent. Interesting, because that's what I would have thought. I once heard uh, in, in, in college there was a woman from Austria who was like an exchange student, and I remember talking to her once about her accent uh, and whether or not she liked having this, this Austrian accent, which I thought was very cool and she had some reservations about. And I said, isn't it cool having an Austrian accent? And she said, and I never understood this, and I don't think it makes sense, she said, well, it's like having freckles. If you don't have them, you wish you did, and if you did have them, you wish you didn't. And I don't know why she said that, because I have never wished that I had freckles. So I didn't know if there was something that I didn't know about that you people with you people that people with freckles might feel about their freckles. But that didn't make any sense to me with the Austrian accent. I don't understand that. So. I can imagine if I were more freckly than I am, I might not like it. But um, they're not they're not massively noticeable. Yeah, but you're not. According to this woman's analogy, you should want freckles. I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't want freckles. I don't, I'm like you. I don't, if I had freckles, I don't think I'd care one way or the other. Uh, so I, I don't know what this woman's, maybe it's an Austrian thing. Just like uh, Brits might have an issue with redheads. Maybe Austrians have some sort of 
cultural baggage with freckles. Who knows? Well, Chris, uh, thank you for uh, explaining Bitmap Brothers to me today. It's a name I've certainly known, and I know they're uh, – I, I will listen to some of the music. I know they're sort of well-known for their, their soundtracks. So uh, thanks for filling me in on the particulars of, like, Speedball 2. And if you ever get stranded on a desert island with a copy of Company of Heroes, uh, I, will, I will gladly join you. Just have to hope the Wi-Fi on the island is good. And two. The water, the water, the water. And two. The water, the water, the water.